Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also donate using the Patreon link in the description below. So I'm glad to be back and I've got an exciting show for everyone today. And the reason for that is I'm happy to welcome the CEO from TG Therapeutics, Michael Weiss. Michael, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me Matt, really appreciate it. <laughs> Yeah, well, TG Therapeutics is a company that I've covered um, for a year or so. And, you know, in the past couple of years, you guys have had massive success. So I first want to congratulate you on all that, you know, the data with in uh, marginal zone lymphoma, follicular lymphoma, the approvals. And then finally, we're getting like good MS data, which is wild. So congrats on all of that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. We're obviously super excited about what's happening. Yeah, and, and in general, I guess I want to ask you, like, what do you attribute that success to? I know it was kind of a, a rough go early on in the company, but then finally we're really starting to see this uh, this wild success come out. Yeah, so, I mean, look, for, for us, it wasn't, I mean, the stock had a rough go, right? Stock was going up and down, and but we had, a, we had put in place a strategy pretty early on. I mean, th what's happened today is literally five or six years in the making. You have to, like, plan... You know, it's like moving a battleship, right? You can't sure. can't do clinical trials and a clinical program toward approval in a very short time frame. So mm -hmm. while the stock was fluctuating, you know, I think people people love to make drama out there. That's true. You know, I think that's part of the stock market. If you don't create any drama, there's yeah, you know, it's not it's not as much fun, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, we had a plan in place and we've been executing on the plan for literally it's a five or six years to get to this point. And, mm -hmm. and so not surprising to us. Yeah. Because we knew we knew what we planned, we, we had an expectation, and look, we were using we're using drugs with known classes, mm -hmm. we have our own, you know, ideas on how we wanted them developed, and they're we think they're better molecules to begin with, but they're in classes that are that are well known and established. So mm -hmm. I think that was that was why we were always so confident with the plan, uh, and it's all worked out great. And I think we've shown through clinical development a really nice differentiation of these molecules over. Uh, prior members of the classes. Yeah, and I think you've definitely delivered on that when it comes to um, safety and efficacy. And I guess to first touch on Uconic, um, so we're in marginal zone lymphoma, follicular lymphoma right now. And like you said, there's other PI3K inhibitors that are on the market, but the differentiator for Uconic is that it's PI3K delta and CK1 epsilon. Is that right? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really different targeted agent, um, very specifically for PI3K Delta, whereas, so the other class members are specific to PI3K kinases, and I'll put an S on there, right. and that covers uh, not just Delta, which is the one that's important for the diseases which we're targeting, but they also hit Gamma, uh, some of them hit Alpha, uh, and that's where you get a, the toxicity from the co-inhibition of some of these uh, enzymes. Uh, the nice part about our drug is highly specific for Delta, but then we also we're the only ones who hit CK1 epsilon. Okay. And that also adds to both the activity profile and adds to the safety profile. So a very different molecule than, than what's come before it. Yeah, and I think that's what bears out in the safety data and why the excitement around it is so high. Um, so, I mean, when, it, when you're thinking about sort of the value proposition to patients and doctors, for, for other, for Uconic versus other already approved molecules, is that one of the main um, value propositions you see as being most impactful, the safety? Is there anything else that you think is going to push patients to want to jump on something like Uconic? Yeah, so the safety profile is critical. When, anytime you're dealing with chronic diseases, and that's every everything we're doing pretty much to, to date when we do have some efforts and some more 
aggressive lymphomas, but marginal zone, follicular, CLL, and even MS. Mm -hmm. These are chronic debilitating diseases that take a long time to take you, take you down, unfortunately, but they do take you down. Uh, and the key is to provide a great quality of life, if possible, for as long as possible. And that's what the goal is. So toxicity of these agents is as important as the activity profile. Mm. Um, because we have, you know, we have pretty good drugs now, particularly follicular, uh, and marginal zone is, is getting there now, and, and CLL is getting there too. But uh, it's all about tolerability, tolerability, tolerability when it comes to chronic diseases. And so, yeah, that's a big differentiator. The other thing is convenience. You know, the other thing we, we figured out early on was convenience is also important to patients who have a long-term disease, right? If you have something that you, you're afraid may kill you tomorrow, mm -hmm. you'll pretty much go through anything to... To save to save yourself and get a better outcome, right? Yeah. But if you have something that you're not expected to have a bad event from, a really bad event, you're gonna have bad events along the way. That a really bad event is 20 years away. You you don't want to put up with as much inconvenience along the way either. So it's tolerability and convenience mm -hmm. become very critical. Obviously, the admission is the cost of admission is you got to have something that works. Yeah. And then to make it make it more attractive, it's got to be. Uh, as least toxic as possible mm -hmm. and convenient. Mm -hmm. So that's something, like I said, so with Umbralista, we're Uconic now. Uh, that's a once a day product, whereas the other PI3Ks that came to the market were twice a day. Mm -hmm. So again, every little bit helps. Mm -hmm. uh, and then with our infusion, uh, with the Tuximab, in CLL, we deliver that in 90 minutes, mm -hmm. uh, whereas uh, Obinutuzumab and Rituxin are, are three to four hours. So there's going to be a nice convenience there too that we've, we don't really talk about much, yeah. uh, but it's going to be somewhat helpful. And then the bigger one is on the MS side where we have that one hour infusion, uh, which is a pretty big deal. So people are really excited about that. So again, yeah. to your point, uh, safety, tolerability, and convenience are, are key. Yeah. And I think it's easy for us, like looking as, as investors or whatever, it's just the, the base things like tolerability and um, efficacy, but things like actual how the patients can experience it is a big deal to them and whether or not they do want to jump onto something new, which, you know, you need a certain amount of act activation energy to jump onto a, a new molecule, say. Yep. Um, so you mentioned CLL, and I know, you know, you've had amazing data in CLL too with uh, having to stop the trial, or not having to stop, but the trial was stopped early because of uh, massive success. And, you know, where are we with that? Have you had discussions with the FDA on sort of a pre-BLA submission? Yeah, so we had a pre-BLA uh, meeting, and the application is now complete and in. Oh. So we're, we're actually uh, in the process of waiting to hear if they've accepted hmm. the, the application. So that's a, you know, you file it. Yeah. 60 days later, they let you know if it's been accepted, and then... When they accept it, they tell you, is it a six-month review or a 10-month review? So that's what we're waiting to hear next. Uh, I think we're somewhere between 30 and 45 days from, from hearing. So it, it just went in about three or four weeks ago. So we're okay. filings in, but yeah, we had the pre-BLA meeting. It's in, uh, and you know, it's it's in progress. So. Yeah, okay. But I mean, that's, that's good. When you have a pre-BLA meeting and it goes well, seemingly everything's to go well. But uh, one thing I wanted to touch on with the FDA, you know, there's been a change up in personnel uh, Janet Woodcock is now the um, acting commissioner, and <clears throat> excuse me, it, it hasn't happened with your company, but some other companies have recently had some upsets with PDUFA um, decisions, 
And I wonder if you think it's anything that you need to worry about. Um, I mean, obviously, with the pre-BLA meeting, you're pretty aligned with the FDA, but do you see the incoming FDA personnel as being any kind of challenge to getting drugs on the market? Uh, I don't. I don't. Look, I I worry about everything. Sure. And, and, you know, worrying about that is a good thing. I mean, you got to worry. You got to make sure that you get it right. And, and look, the FDA, they, they, I think, I think the organization as a whole will not change dramatically uh, upon change at the top. Right? I think right. they they built multiple layers of of ideally consistent behavior, mm-hmm. uh, and like we've experienced it at, from time to time uh, that you feel like there there's some inconsistencies. But I, I have to admit that uh, the groups that we're dealing with today uh, have have been quite consistent in their guidance mm-hmm. and their behavior. So and that's all you that's all you want. Yeah. From from an agency, you, obviously we know that they care. We, we know that they're trying really hard, uh, but to operate in this kind of setting, you just need people to be consistent and fair. That's all you ask mm-hmm. for. Yeah. Okay. That's uh, that's good to hear then. So let's move on to Ublituximab. And you know, we saw an update in the data this past weekend at AAN, I think it's called. And uh, yeah, do you want to share some of the results? I know we saw uh, below a 0.1 annualized response rate. Yeah, so the data was, you know, my personal opinion, I thought it was great. I was super, super happy about it. Uh, in the opinion of the, uh, the KOLs, they were super excited. And, and objectively, there's nothing you could say really negative about the data. It was, it was, it was really, uh, really impressive and very exciting for us. So annualized relapse rate is the primary endpoint for, for approval for these, uh, for MS and these types of trials. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, annualized relapse rate is basically... These are patients who have um, relapsing forms of MS. Right. So it's called RMS, which means that they'll have like an event, so a relapse of sorts, and then they'll, most of the times they will recover, but right. each time they have an event, their decline in can go, right? So you want to try to avoid the events because each time you have a risk of deteriorating uh, function. Mm-hmm. So annualized relapse rate was, was very low. Uh, it was 0. 0.10 is a, is a mark that uh, historically has been unable to, to be broken. And, and people were very excited when we came in. Uh, one of our studies was, I think, 0. 0.09, the other 0. 0.07. So really very, very low uh, relapse rates. Uh, and then the other thing you look at are secondary endpoints, uh, things like a brain scans, right? So you look for lesions in the brain, which are pretty characteristic of Yes. And we nearly eliminated uh, all the, what they call T1, GAD-enhancing lesions. So reduction was, was very dramatic. Uh, and also, similarly, you know, T2 lesions were also reduced uh, dramatically. So those are, again, just nice, nice things to see. Biologically, they go very nicely hand-in-hand with the relapse rates. Uh, then there's disability progression, disability improvement. Uh, and both those measures, Ubli um, uh, outperform. Uh, the the um, the progression uh, numbers were very low across the board. Both both arms actually had very yeah. low progression numbers, uh, but you know only five five percent of the patients had a progression on on Ubli, which is amazing, and twelve percent actually improved. Right. So that's a that when when they look at you know when when the experts look at these studies, that that ratio is very important to them. How many patients uh, progressed versus how many patients actually improved? And it's very hard to improve these patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think over time, we'd like, you know, we, we think the long-term data will support uh, that, 
that these drugs, the CD20 is a class, not just our CD20, but the CD20s as a class, uh, have the possibility of, of really arresting and potentially reversing some of the disease. Yeah. Uh, and then the last measure, which is really interesting, it's like a composite. Mm -hmm. So you take all the prior endpoints, so relapses, lesions, progression, uh, and you say, you put it into, they do as a formula, say, how many patients at the end of the study had, had literally no evidence of disease? Uh, and in our case, it was uh, mid-40s uh, percent of the patients had no, no evidence of disease. And the control arm, which is an active arm, it was only in the 10 or 12% range. Right. So really very dramatic in the ability to enhance patients who can go two years in a study and have no evidence of their disease. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah. so that's, to me, those are, those are the exciting data points. All right, everybody, I wanted to take a second to thank our sponsor, which is Gallant. Gallant is the stem cell banking company for pets. They have a patented technology to isolate and store your pet's stem cells that are harvested during your pet's normal spay or neuter procedure. So rather than just throwing out this rich source of potential stem cells, you work with Gallant and your veterinarian to take that tissue, isolate the stem cells, and preserve them for the future in case your pet needs them for some kind of condition that they end up with. Stem cells have been evaluated in hundreds of studies and have been shown to improve the quality of life of pets with everything from allergic skin conditions to orthopedic injuries and more. Plans start as low as $45 a month, and you can save $100 off the initial payments by using my coupon code BIO. That is the coupon code BIO. The company name is Gallant. You can check them out at gallant.com. They're the stem cell banking company for pets. Take advantage of this technology to isolate your pet's stem cells. Gallant.com. Let's get back into the show. Yeah, and, and one thing, I did watch the... Um, the data preview talk with the KOLs that you guys had, and that was super useful to get a sense of, you know, what are doctors actually doing? Because MS, when when I look at it as an investor, it's like a pretty crowded field, I would say. Now, the CD20s, it's not very crowded, right? And the doctor's impressions that I got was that CD20 might start emerging as a more, um, just a bigger piece of the pie in terms of all MS treatments. So that that was super interesting. Um, yep. One of the things that did come up on the call was that, uh, I forget which doctor it was, but he mentioned that one of the more important things for him was carrier availability. And yeah. I wanted to ask you, you know, I know we're a little bit early. I don't, the BLA hasn't been submitted yet, but you know, what are you going to do to make sure that it is available on, on carriers? Yeah. So, so we've been very vocal about this from the beginning of the, of the start of this program. So when we went into MS, we said on day one that, that we're going to use price as a lever. Um, so we're going we're gonna to talk to payers. We've, we've done payer research. Uh, eventually, we're going to have to talk to payers. But uh, we've got a pretty good feel for where, where the market is. And again, I don't think we're there yet. But we're feeling pretty good that some reasonable discount from the current pricing mm -hmm. uh, will get us um, priority access. And that's really the goal. So. Again, what we've said historically, and we'll say it, I'll say it again today, um, is that if if we can get better access mm -hmm. for our patients by lowering the price, we will do that. If payers come back to us and say, we don't care what price you charge us, you're still going to have to wait for this, that, and the other thing, then then we can't take price, right? So we're, we're willing to do it. If the payers are willing to work with us on it, um, we are we're 
we're not just willing to do it, we're excited to be able to do it. Sure. And that's kind of one, uh, I think, benefit of being second to market with this is that we already know where what Acrevis is doing, how uh, how those numbers are looking. So you can kind of come in and say, well, this is the landscape. We're going to do this. And um, yeah, I think it's a pretty good value proposition. There's obviously benefits to being first to market with Acrevis. You just it, the market is yours for CD20. I mean, obviously, how do you think it's going to stack up against Acrevis in terms of just getting patients comfortable with switching to something new? Do you think that you know, the data pricing, that's going to be enough to, to get a big slice of that CD20 pie. I do. I do. Yeah. So I, I think, look, by the way, would I have loved to have been first and, and have their 4 billion in sales today plus? Sure. I, I would take it. No, you're not going not gonna to hear me complain about that. But we are, we are excited to be able to come into the market with what we think is a better product profile. Uh, and, and so doing, yes, we think, you know, there, there's two parts to the market, right? There's, there's new starts. So there's patients who have never seen a CD20 before and maybe were previously treated something else and they're starting a new treatment. Uh, and so that's a potential patient for us. And then there's patients who have never been treated before, which we really want to get after. Uh, and, and, and we want to compete for those. So in, in that category, we think we've got efficacy, safety, tolerability and convenience um, and price packaged together really nicely. Mm -hmm. And we think we're gonna compete well. So whatever percentage we believe, I think there's, the numbers I think I've heard, there's about 40,000 of those patients either seeking a new treatment mm -hmm. uh, every year. Um, so it's pretty good size uh, number and it could be larger. Uh, that's just US alone. Um, but if we are you know, competing well into that marketplace, uh, the numbers will start to grow rapidly. Most of these patients will stay on mm -hmm. for multiple years. So you can see how that will start to, yeah. to grow upon itself. Uh, and then I think Acrevis, maybe, I don't know, I think 100,000 patients mm. potentially are Acrevis today. Uh, you know, every year we heard from the KOLs, there's insurance, you know, insurance changes, people have to maybe switch. Even a small percent, if, if 5% or less every year, we're switching off of Acrevis because of insurance issues or they want the convenience, um, that would be great too, yeah. right? And, you, and again, those just keep adding up on each other as well. So we think that um, between uh, new starts and patients who need to switch medications for, for a number of reasons, uh, that, that we're going to be in a great position to, to capture a nice piece of this market. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so too. So in terms of next steps, um, BLA submission target, or are we, we're still waiting for a pre-BLA meeting with the FDA? Uh, so we, we don't really discuss when, when we have our pre-BLA meetings, but I will say that we are, um, we are targeting a third quarter submission. Okay, very cool, very exciting. Uh, so I guess to touch, you know, we were touching a little bit on the commercial part of the organization and you know, as, as an investor, I think I stand with other people and like worrying about companies that go from clinical to commercial. A lot of times the sentiment kind of changes because the bar to actually launch a molecule is extremely high. And it's really difficult when you're going up against companies that have really big sales forces, they already have relationships with um, teams and things like that. But, you know, can you speak a little bit to how the sales, like you built a sales team, presumably for um, MZL and FL, but then mm -hmm. you're also going to need to get one for MS, I imagine. Is, is that kind of the strategy? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that is the plan. So on the, let, let's start on the MZL follicular and into CLL side. So it is nice when you're a company that has a commercial field force in place and they're selling something and then they have a new drug coming, it is nice that you're already in those offices and you kind of have the relationships and the system is rolling. We have a lot of relationships, mm -hmm. but turning that into a system that's rolling does take time. And so that, that is the advantage that established companies have and new, new, new companies that start to launch mm -hmm. will face some of those pressures. For us, the good news is we're launching into marginal and follicular first. Mm -hmm. it's, not our, it's not our biggest market. Certainly believe that we're helping those patients quite a bit, so we're excited to be there. Um, but that gives us a, almost an entire year to get those processes rolling, get those relationships reestablished at a new company. Because everyone who came in, like I said, has relationships. We have our relationships. It's just creating the flow of those relationships into a system. Mm -hmm. uh, but the good news is we have almost a full year uh, to do that. Along the way, we're building our margin zone and follicular franchise. But when we hit the ground for CLL, that's when we want to make sure that that's, it's not a new company, new launch. Now we're an established company launching into a much larger space with a bigger labeled indication. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's the long game here. I mean, and that's not even long game. That's a yeah. year away. Yeah. Yeah. And it does kind of make sense. Um, cause I mean, the patients are related. They're not obviously the same, but they're, they're not, but, um, in the community, there's a dramatic overlap between, um, yeah. Uh, between providers so yeah if you're writing for marginal follicular in the community you're probably 80 percent likely you're the cll person as well right right oh that that does make it kind of helpful then um, yeah so we haven't touched on on pricing too much although you did mention it for um for oblituximab you know one thing that i think has contributed to the negative sentiment in the sector right now is politicians talking a lot about restricting drug pricing and I know, you know, this is a bigger problem, I think, for rare disease companies that need that big, uh, you know, it's really high price. D does it concern you at all that politicians are starting to talk more about this? How do you think TGTX is going to adapt in more restrictive pricing environment? I think we're probably okay, yeah. right? Because in the, in the broader market experience of MS, um, we're doing our part to, yeah. to help out. That's true, uh, yeah. In the areas where um, people are less focused on the oncology side, smaller indications, even CLL is is not like lung cancer, yeah. breast cancer, and prostate cancer. So I think in those areas where you know it, it is hard to to come in at, at much lower prices. I mean, the the cost of of getting the drugs to market, and then the cost of actually getting the drugs to the patients, is 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 quite surprising. Um, even, you know, again, as a, as a, as a person is somewhat new to this side of the business, mm. coming up from the research side and the development side more, um, seeing what percentage of the actual price ends up in, in the company's pocket is, is pretty interesting yeah. between discounts and sure. rebates and distributor costs and GPO costs and free drugs that we give out. I mean, sure. we have a very active free drug program. Uh, when you add it all up, it's 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 surprising what the actually goes to the pharmaceutical company's bottom line. So I think in, in cases where you've got smaller diseases, uh, I think people are going to have to tolerate uh, the higher prices. And I think where you have very large diseases, more you know, like an MS for one, and, and there's 
obviously ones that are much larger. Um, that's where I think the pricing pressure will, will come in. And I think we're poised and ready to be, to be well placed for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so too. And especially for MS that I think it's a, it's a no brainer how easy it's going to be for you guys to get in there with a more attractive price. We'll say. I agree with you. Yeah. Um, all right. I wanted to talk, talk a little bit about your preclinical pipeline. Uh, sure. it's pretty big. And, you know, a lot of people are excited about it, so I wanted to go through this briefly, but we've got a BTK inhibitor, a BET inhibitor, the CD47, CD19 bispecific, and um, a PDL one Is that right? Yep. Yeah. So there's been, I just wanted to ask you quickly, there's been like some rumors on Twitter about IRAC4. Is that, is that a target that the company's interested in? So, so we have an IRAC4 slash FLT3 inhibitor uh, in, in late preclinical development. Uh, admittedly, a few years ago, we, we paused the program because we were a little concerned about uh, the preclinical tox profile of the agent. Uh, we've, we've, now that there's actually clinical proof of concept, uh, which happens to be an AML uh, and MDS where FLT3 matters also, um, the molecule actually has a pretty interesting profile. So we're going to reevaluate. Uh, I think we've got, you know, some new models to look at and, and we'll take a good hard look and make a determination of whether we're going to bring it into the clinic. So for the moment, okay. you know, it's, it's not, it's not there yet. Right. If something good happens, we'll let you know. Uh, but it's, uh, it's there and we're evaluating, we're reevaluating it in light of new information. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's fair. And I, I was just kind of curious cause I saw some talk about it and then it kind of went away but so regarding all the other ones and like there's a lot here but i know we're looking at combinations um with u2 i mean as well as something like imbrutinib or venetoclax but then also these proprietary molecules that you guys have so you're going to try to do all of it is there going to be like a priority um one group over another one molecule over another not really no i mean it, it there's a natural cadence to it, so right now the what, what we're furthest along with actually is the is the U2 plus venetoclax. Um, there's been a great you know we we brought in a lot of academic centers and there's a lot of great demand for for our phase two program, so we moved it very quickly forward. Okay. So um, so that one is is moving along quite nicely, uh, and then also again from a natural cadence standpoint, our BTK program has accelerated as well. Because we we found you know very nicely that the at the lowest doses we tried the drug worked very well and was very well tolerated, mm -hmm. um, so so that makes the program a lot easier to move forward when you get there quickly and you don't have to go through dose escalation dose gus I mean sometimes it can take a while so that was really nice so that moved forward quickly uh, CD forty seven is coming through as well uh, had a little bit of a slow start uh, there primarily because we didn't have a USIND and it was uh, it was uh, in, uh, it was in Australia only, but now we've got it in the U S and that cadence uh, should move more quickly. So again, I think we're, we're just going with, we're pushing everything forward, but again, there's a natural cadence to how well and how fast things can move forward. Sure. Yeah. And I guess, you know, whichever one has an early success quick and it, it does make sense to, to move forward. The, the CD 47 is interesting to me because I don't think I've seen a CD 47 by specific. Um, is that right? Would this be kind of a potentially first in class for this type of molecule? I believe that's correct. 
Yeah, I haven't seen one to my knowledge either. So yeah, we're, we're pretty excited about uh, the dual targeting of CD19 and CD47. It really fits our wheelhouse, yeah. particularly as a B-salt focused company. Yeah, definitely. And I guess the other ones are, are more, well, I guess wherever they see a success, they'll be happy with. But it seems like this is going to have a potential um, B-cell specific effect, potentially more than the others. I know it's early, so we can't really say with too much confidence, but it's interesting. Yeah, uh, we're, we're excited about it. And we're looking forward to it. the goal there, just to give a heads up, I think we're hoping to have some data available by year end. Okay. So we're pushing toward that. Cl clinical data, you mean? Clinical data, yeah. yeah. Okay, very cool. So I think, um, you know, we're kind of coming to a close to the questions I had for you. In general, I think, you know, bigger picture, what do you think your vision is for TGTX? Is there a company that you sort of model yourselves after? Well, I think at one point we, we did think ourselves a little bit in the cell gene model, but I think they lost their way at, at the end. Uh, but I think early on, I think cell gene was something that we kind of liked. I, I saw that company grow up. I've been around, around it for, for many years. Um, you know, I think, yeah, I, I think any of the successful biotech companies, you know, they, they've, unfortunately, they've done it, most of them with, with one molecule. Uh, and reproducing that has been a challenge uh, for most of these companies. Uh, and when they do, it's, you know, it's a long time coming. I think we do feel like, you know, if you invest in the portfolio and you, and you really think of where you want to go with it, uh, you can be even more successful than a lot of these folks have been. Um, so I think any one of the large biotech companies are, are a reasonable model. Um, but I think, I think we're, We'd like to go our own path and, and create value the way we've been doing it, which is uh, aggressively pursuing uh, combination approaches, looking for you know pathways forward that are well validated, but that we can uh, improve upon in some way, uh, and just try to be as smart as possible and, and, and as frugal as possible about doing it. Yeah, well, and it seems like all the investment has really paid off to date. Obviously, the, the there's a lot of potential in the future, but. Um, you guys, I think, are, are well set for success. So I think myself and a lot of other people um, in the investment side anyway are really excited for what the future is going to be for TGTX. But, you know, one other question I had, is the company at all open to an acquisition? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, we're, we, we have a very high hurdle. It's not so the, the what I what I would say is we're going to build a company that's built to last. And, you know, if, if we're left alone long enough, we will certainly be one of the largest biotech companies. Um, if our plan, if we can continue to execute and do what we're doing, there's no reason why we, we couldn't achieve that kind of level of success if we're left alone. Now, if someone comes along um, before that and makes us an offer we can't refuse, you know, we are beholden to our shareholders and, and we would do that. But it's a very high hurdle uh, and we don't we don't spend our day. We're not building the company in a way that's trying to be acquired. Those things happen organically, uh, and and when it happens, we'll, we'll be positioned to evaluate it appropriately. Uh, and if if it's not what we're looking for, uh, and you know to date certainly has not been what we've been looking for, and uh, then we'll we'll continue down this path. Yeah. Okay. And and just one other question related to that. You know, we've seen the FTC come at Illumina for their Grail acquisition. 
Uh, do you think that's going to have an impact kind of moving forward in the biotech sector if, if there's a stricter regulatory uh, monitoring of that kind of thing? Uh, it certainly could, yeah. right? I mean, I think that is an area where um, companies will need to be cautious um, about trying to purchase their acquire, their competitors, mm-hmm. right? So the good news is there's, there's plenty of companies. Yeah. Uh, the bad news is there are some companies that, you know, probably are, are not able to merge with other companies. Mm-hmm. It's just the way, or without without major dislocation of products and opportunities. Right, right. Okay, all right. Um, awesome. Well, Michael, I appreciate all your time today. Is there a social media or anything you want to point people to? Um, you know, we've become a lot more active uh, on Twitter. Okay. So for those who, who are interested, I, I we're going to be even more active, and I think we're going to try to do more through, through Twitter. So... Uh, if you're not following us yet, probably a good idea to, to get on there. Awesome. Great. And uh, the company, TG Therapeutics, uh, I want to thank you a lot, Michael, for coming on the show. It's, it's great to be able to talk to somebody on the inside because I'm usually from the outside talking about all the <laughs> corporate presentations. But uh, I do appreciate your time today. And everybody check out TGTX. They are, uh, they're doing some good stuff. So um, with that, we're going to wrap it up. But thanks, everybody, for watching, and we'll see you next time.